good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is God's word. Now, I don't know if you like an adventure. Okay? Well, on Wednesday, I met up with my brother Johnny. And Johnny is someone who absolutely loves an adventure. He was even on a program on television called Survivor a few years back. But let me tell you what Johnny told me on Wednesday. The following day, on Thursday, he was flying off to Sydney in Australia. And in Sydney, he would be attending a jungle survival training course before flying off to Vanuatu, in the South Pacific. So what on earth is he up to this time? Well, in Vanuatu, he was with a team of 12 volunteers working with local tribes out in the jungle. And folks, they will be really surviving, so he tells me. For four months in that jungle, they will have no access to telephones, television, Tesco's, or takeaways. They'll be living it rough. And if you happen to be passing through Vanuatu one day, and if you happen to drop by, that's what you would see. They are surviving. And how would you know that? Well, let me share with you the information sheet that Johnny was sent. I found this quite amusing. Where is Johnny going to live? He'll be sleeping in a village hut on the floor with a mosquito net. His diet... Very basic, vegetables with some fish for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Running water? You must be joking. So you can imagine what they're going to smell like. And I'm told there are still some places left if you want to join them. Now the point is this, are they living out what they are saying? Yes. 
What they say and what they do go together. They are surviving. And the two cannot be separated. Now, that message is central to the epistle of James. And in chapter 2, here we come to the heart of it. Now, as you may know, James here is being a little bit provocative. Okay, Martin Luther, the great reformer, back in 1522, famously described the letter of James as a rather strawy letter. And even Luther didn't exclude it from the New Testament. But here's what is so important to grasp. James means to be provocative. He wants to get our attention. And he does that in verse 24. Verse 24. What does he say? He writes, You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And justified means to be declared righteous by God. Now look at this. At first glance, this verse, verse 24, seems to contradict Romans 3.28, does it not? Where Paul writes, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So what does that mean? Have we found here a contradiction in God's word? Well, no. Here is what James is saying. He is saying that true faith, saving faith, means being conspicuous for Christ. He would have loved our vision statement. James, can good works save you? Definitely not. Will true faith show in your life? Definitely yes. And that's what James is saying here. Let me explain. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is speaking against those who try to be saved by deeds. That is their works rather than true saving faith. But in contrast, in James 2 here, as we'll find, James is speaking against those who confuse mere intellectual belief with true faith. Why? Because true faith will show on how you live. And it will show in three ways. Three crucial changes in your life. Firstly, there is a change of belief. A change of belief. There is a change from the philosophical to the personal. Now, a few years ago, I was on a management training course. It was held in Moffat, down in Moffat in Auckland Castle. Now, let me share this with you. We were split into several teams. And it was full of MBA students. You'd like to think we were quite bright. You'd like to think that. And in our team, we were given a task to complete. I wonder if you can guess what our task was. We were given some old planks of wood. Yes? And oil drums. And we were asked to build a raft. You've done it as well. And see if it floats. What could be more simple? Now, intellectually, did we believe that our raft would float? Absolutely. We had built it, hadn't we? Of course, it was going to float. But let me confess, up until then, that belief made no difference to my life whatsoever. Did I believe a raft would float? Yes. But up until that moment, it had no effect upon me whatsoever. And folks, that's just the same in our spiritual lives. Think about this. If I only have an intellectual belief in God, okay, if that's all it is, that is not the same as true saving faith. Take a look at verse 19. 
James drives this point home in verse 19. Where he says, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, I thought about that during the week. And I asked myself, so then, what would a demon believe in God? What would a demon know about God? And I even asked my fellowship group to help me out on Thursday. And here's what we came up with. A demon would know that God is the creator. Okay, he made the world. And a demon would know that God is the judge. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. And they'd even know, get this, that God is the rescuer. You know, I am sure they could tell you John 3.16 back to front. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, now let's stop and let's think about this. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me this. I can believe that God is the creator. And I can believe that God is the judge. And I can even believe that God is the rescuer. And still, catch this, still not have true saving faith. Why? Because true saving faith involves a personal belief. Now, on our management training course, we did it. Okay, We had built a raft, hooray, and now it was time to test it. Would it float or would it sink? That was the question. And so we walked confidently to the lake. We looked at the water. We looked at each other. And we looked once again at our raft. And I volunteered someone else to test it. <laughs> Because management is about delegation. But for that individual, the moment he decided to step onto that raft, it had become a personal faith. You see, it was no longer just intellectual. It was more than that. It was an influential belief. And that belief had entered not just into his mind, but his whole life. And folks, this is crucial in the book of James. It's a personal belief. I love how James begins this chapter. Verse 1. What does it say? My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's a thought. If you were to look around here this morning in Charlotte Chapel, okay, and you asked everyone here, where do you come from and what do you do? Because you're a very direct kind of person. You would find people from many different countries of the world. And you would find people from all walks of life. Maybe you're a school teacher, or a nurse, or a doctor, or an office worker, or a lawyer. Or you may look after the kids, or you may be retired. Now let me ask you, what is it that unites us together? Verse 1. It's our personal belief in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. John Bacon was a famous sculptor. 
And if you ever go to Westminster Abbey in London, you'll find this inscription when he wrote this. What I was as an artist seemed of some importance to me while I lived. But what I was as a believer in Jesus Christ is the only thing of importance to me now. I wonder this morning, if you have that same assurance. Tomorrow night we have a course called Christianity Explored. If you don't have that assurance, I would recommend the course to you. It starts at quarter past seven in the lounge downstairs and it would be great to see you there. So there is a change of belief. And secondly, it leads to a change of heart. A change of heart. There is a change from being phlegmatic to being passionate. I thought you'd like the word phlegmatic. I looked it up in the Collins English Dictionary and I gave this definition for being phlegmatic. And it said, having a stolid or unemotional disposition, not easily excited. Okay, and we get a great picture of this in verse 15. Look at verse 15. It's a picture of someone who is totally unmoved and totally unconcerned about what grieves the heart of God. Let's look at this together. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now this morning we have watched a video clip, quite a moving video clip, of global poverty. Let me remind you what we saw. Today, right now, in 2006, one billion people live in less than one dollar a day. 125 million children don't have access to primary school. Nearly 30,000 children under the age of five die every day in 2006. Around 529,000 women die each year giving birth, and 99% are from developing countries. 14 million children have been orphaned by HIV AIDS, and today 1.4 billion people live with no or dirty drinking water. Now here's a challenge for us this morning. Are our hearts moved when we hear that? Are they moved? Or have we become so numb to it all? Are we phlegmatic? Let me read you what Bruce Milne writes about this. I thought it was very insightful. Bruce Milne wrote about some of the challenges that we face in a globalised or interdependent world. And he writes this. Listen to what he writes. One of the most immediate implications of globalisation is a redefinition of our neighbour. That vulnerable individual lying by the roadside whom Jesus summons to minister to and help. He is no longer merely the social casualty in our immediate neighbourhood. And he writes this, Neighbour is also that peasant farmer in Saigon province in China. That HIV AIDS infected mother of eight in Lusaka, Zambia. Or that penniless family trapped in the favela in Rio de Janeiro all of whom stand to be significantly impacted by how globalisation functions 
in the next years. Listen to this. To ignore the issues of global justice is to find ourselves in the company of James' cynical Christian observer. Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. The man whose faith is dead. The prophet Micah put it this way. Rodney read it for for us earlier. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now we come to a healthy heart. A healthy heart is a passionate heart. It's a passionate heart. Now I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of your physical heart in hospital. Well, when I was five years old, I was in the Royal Sick Kids Hospital in Glasgow for a co-art patient of the aorta. And I love to tell doctors that. You look so impressed this morning. <laughs> now, the problem was this. My heart wasn't working properly. Okay? The aorta was too narrow and the blood wasn't circulating as it should. And so when I was five, I went to York Hill Hospital and they had to cut a bit out, about an inch and a half, and join it back together again. Is that right, Sharon? I think it's right. And I have a massive scar on my back to prove it, which I tell everyone was a shark attack. It's more <laughs> impressive. Now, here's the point. If you have true faith, your heart has been changed. God has performed a far greater type of heart surgery on you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And listen to this. Listen, the Lord Jesus, he has scars on his hands and scars on his feet to prove it. We sang it this morning. Come see his hands and his feet. The scars that speak of sacrifice. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. This is our God, the servant king. George Bower, as you may know, led Operation Mobilization for many years. And George actually became a Christian back in March 1955. It was during a Billy Graham crusade in Madison Square Garden in New York. And that passion, folks, for Christ, it hasn't left them. Listen to what George Bower said. After living 50 years as a Christian. Listen to this. I would like to tell you that what happened to me that night, so many years ago, has been a reality in my heart and life for every single day since. It is a true, living and real experience with God himself made possible through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. It's brilliant. Now let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to find what this passionate, transformed heart actually looks like. So Galatians chapter 5. And let's start at verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, 
fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, look at this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I wonder, if you could look inside and see your heart this morning, would it be phlegmatic or would it be passionate? Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so true faith shows in a change of belief and a change of heart. And now finally, it shows in a change of lifestyle. A change of lifestyle. There is a change from mere profession to practice. And folks, that's exactly what James is condemning here. Profession without practice. Take a look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? If you look at verse 18 now, But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. In other words, he says, it's not possible, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Now, imagine it this way. Imagine if I was feeling very generous, okay? Just imagine that. And I decided to pay for us all to go on holiday. The kind of person that I am. And we all went to visit my brother in the South Pacific, who claims he is roughing it. Now, imagine if we got there, and instead of finding Johnny living in a village hut with no running water, we found him lying by the beach, staying in a plush five-star quality hotel with full waiter service. Let me ask you, what would you think? Those gibs are all the same. That's that's what we would think. We would think that what he says and how he lives are completely different. No correspondence whatsoever. No correlation. And that's what James is getting at here. What we say and how we live should match. Verse 26. Notice, faith without deeds is dead. Now, hold that thought in your head, okay? But also listen to what Amy Carmichael once said. Amy Carmichael was an amazing lady. She went to India as a missionary for 56 years and she spent her life rescuing children who had been dedicated by their own families to be temple prostitutes. And to them she was known as Amma, which means mother. But listen to what Amy Carmichael wrote. It was very honest. Now Amy knew that what we say, okay, and how we live should match. But she was also aware, very aware, of her own feelings. And she said this, Sometimes, when we read the words of those who have been more than conquerors, we feel almost despondent. Yes? I feel that I shall never be like that. But she says this, But they won through step by step, by little denials of self, little inward victories, by faithfulness in very little things, they became what they are. No one sees these little hidden steps. 
They only see the accomplishment. But even so, those small steps were taken. There is no sudden triumph to spiritual maturity. That is the work of the moment. In other words, keep on going and keep on growing. And the Apostle Paul knew that. And he wrote this to the Christians at Thessalonica. We ought always to thank God for you brothers and rightly so. Because your faith is growing more and more. And the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Keep on going and keep on growing. And now finally, we are to show our faith in practice. And in verses 25, James gives two powerful examples of what it means to put our faith into practice. So notice verse 21. We are told about Abraham, the great patriarch. Let's look at verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And James writes this, you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And all of this, he was called God's friend. And now in verse 25, Who do we come to? It's Rahab, someone very different. But look at what it says. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Alec Motier writes helpfully in his commentary on James. Alec Motier writes this. The life of faith is more than a private transaction of the heart with God. It is a life, listen to this, of active consecration, seen in the obedience which holds nothing back from God, and the concern which holds nothing back from human need. Now this morning, we have heard of two brilliant examples of how we can apply this. We've heard from Louise about Samaritan's Purse, and it's a great idea. You get an old shoebox, you write in it whether it's for a boy or a girl, you fill it with presents, and the closing date, Louise, is... When's the closing date? 5th November. 5th November. And your shoebox will be received by a very happy boy or girl in some of the poorest countries in the world. It's a great idea. We've all seen a video clip of the MICA Challenge. And this is organised by the World Evangelical Alliance. And as you leave this morning, you'll be given a forum which you can sign and return. It's a great idea as well. One scholar put it this way, the good works of a Christian life signify that we are growing up in Jesus Christ. Authentic Christianity goes from head to heart to hand and foot. It is squeezed into shoe leather and pounds the pavement to show compassion to others. It shows up in a new quality of life, new direction, new motivations. That is the bottom line. Now, this morning, we're almost finished. We began by thinking about my brother, Johnny, out in the South Pacific. Let me close by giving you this thought. If you were on that team, okay, out in that jungle, would the rest of the team know that you're a Christian? Would they know that? Would they see that you're different? Not just because you said you were a Christian, 
but would they see it in how you act, in how you relate to other people? And would they see it in the things that you say and how you say it? And would they see it in the perspective you have on life? As we go into this new week, let us remind ourselves of these words that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae when he writes this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let us pray.